Hello, my name is James Cohen, and I am an Associate Professor of ESL Bilingual Education in the Department of Curriculum Instruction at NIU. I am delighted to be sitting with a dear friend of mine, Dr. David Nieto, who is an Assistant Professor also in the Department of Curriculum Instruction. He came to us exactly one year ago from the University of Colorado Boulder, where he was the Executive Director of the Bueno Center. I invited David to join me today not only because we have been friends for many years and we have very similar interests regarding second language acquisition, language policies, and the intersectionality of language, race, and ethnicity, but also because David is uniquely qualified to talk about these topics from being the director of the Division of English Language Learners at the Illinois State Board of Education from 2012 to 2016. Essentially, he was overseeing and supporting all of the bilingual ESL and migrant programs for the state of Illinois for four years. Now that we have him at NIU, I get to interact with him not only on a daily basis, but I get the honor of interviewing him for this podcast, which he has so gracefully titled The Connections Between Language Education and Multilingual Learners. So David, hello. Hello, James. Thank you so much for the nice introduction. It is my <laughs> pleasure to be here with you. Oh, it's all true. It's, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad that you're here with me today. So, you know, language is not something that everyone is very interested in. And so I'm really, really curious, um, why did you become interested in language and language policy? Well, when I uh, first arrived in the U.S., I was working as an educational counselor for a, a Latin organization, La Alianza Hispana, in near Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, I uh, was made aware of my own privilege uh, by the students that I was serving uh, would often refer to my Spanish like the authentic uh, uh, or the um, good Spanish. And mm -hmm. uh, I suddenly realized how charged that statement coming from them was. I realized how um, the, the privilege that I had to, for them to consider that the way that I was speaking was somehow superior to the way that they were speaking. And at that time, I decided that I needed to understand more where that, what that was coming for, from and what I could do, actually, to help them understand that that's a misconception, that their Spanish was as authentic as mine and as good as mine, and that there was absolutely no difference in the ways that they were speaking and I was speaking and uh, the purpose that it, that it served. So what did you end up doing then to learn that? how to teach that or how what are the why there's this hierarchy in dialects i decided to go back to school so i i need, i discovered i realized that i needed to educate myself so i decided to go back to to school and i actually completed my first master's degree in the university of uh, massachusetts boston a master's degree in applied linguistics under the direction of uh, dr uh, donaldo macedo and dr lilia bartolome that are two figures in the field and that was absolutely helpful you know in terms of my um on the realization of how I could address the, the issues that my students were presenting in front of me uh, in questions with regard to language and language discrimination and why language is uh, such an important part of, uh, of who we are. So can you talk a little bit about that then? Like, how is language so important part of who we are? Um, we tend to think of language as a tool, as only a tool for communication. 
But language is much more than that, right? Language is part and parcel of our individual and social identity. And uh, actually, Chicana scholar Gloria Anzaldúa um, wrote that if you really want to hurt me, talk badly about my language. And that's actually true for all of fact for all of us. You know, whenever we hear someone talking negatively about our own language, uh, be English or German or Spanish or whatever now what. Um, we feel some sort of hurt inside. We feel that something is not about right, right? Like as we were, as if we were put down as well. Which that actually reveals that deep connection between language and who we are, our identity, who who we feel. So, sadly, some individuals are taught from the beginning that their language is not good. It's not good enough. There's either because the dialect or the variety of language that they speak or uh, because the language itself, right, in the context that it's spoken, is not valued by society. And that makes those individuals feels, feel less than. Can you give an example of, of what you're referring to? Well, we have uh, one in our country right now, right? Um, uh, for example, Spanish. Talking Spanish in the U.S. is not perceived, uh, especially uh, spoken by uh, um, Latin Americans, right, or uh, North Americans like Mexicans. Uh, Lat- uh, speaking Spanish is not considered a um, proper form of communication, right? It's not acceptable. And uh, actually, it's not only that they are um, judged because they speak Spanish, but because of the Spanish they speak, right? Like if I come to this country speaking French, for example, or Spanish from Spain, that's considered in a way. But if someone from Guatemala, uh, like my former students, most of them were from Central America, um, comes and speaks Spanish, that Spanish is not valued. It's not valued because of the Spanish and because of Spanish in the context of the English-only uh, uh, environment that it seems we are we are fostering over here. How do you think that these hierarchies in language were created? or how? How did they come around? Historically, that's a, a very interesting question. But we have two very good examples historically. Uh, one with England and the treatment, for example, that they gave uh, to Gaelic when they invited Ireland, in which uh, there was a survey, right, a land survey, in which they rename absolutely all the um, landmarks, all the cities, you know, from Gaelic to English, right? And they treated Gaelic basically as his it was a substandard variety of language. They, they didn't treat it as language. But also in 1492, right, uh, Antonio de Nebrija in Spain was the first person to compile a grammar of Castilian, right? And very interestingly, uh, um, Antonio de Nebrija writes in the prologue, right, in the introductory section, that he dedicates the book, that he wants to dedicate the books to uh, Queen Isabella so that she can give it uh, to the people that were in the ships to the New World, right? What it was thought to be the Indies at that time, so that when these priests and warriors come to land, they could bring with them their language and culture in those savage people that they find. So Antonio Nebrija is giving us uh, a clue of how this happened. You see, he was already considering that uh, the way they talk, their language, Castilian at that point, was a more advanced version of whatever uh, Columbus and um, the uh, discoverers, right, between commas, that I'm, I'm saying this, uh, and the discoverers uh, that went with them, you know, uh, would find anywhere in the Indies. 
So he was making sure that they had a tool to impose the language on the others. Language can be used as a tool for, commun- uh, for colonization, right? So in order for me to be colonized, I have to at some point develop a sense that who I am, that my cultural identity, that my history, that my past is not good enough. And colonizers also know this. One of the tools that they use to make sure this internalization of subordination is language. So we, we tell them your language is not good enough. Right? And we have examples, actually, sadly, until very recently, in which we are basically telling, telling uh, some population your language is not good enough. It's not as good as my language. So th- can you speak uh, directly to the idea of using language then as a form of discrimination? Definitely. Sadly, um, we uh, have recently seen an increase uh, uh, of these cases, but it's happened uh, throughout history in the U.S., right? Like when they say, we are in America, speak English, right? Right. That's absolutely a, a disgrace for many reasons. First, because it's a blatant, um, it's not respectful of the multilingual history of this nation, right? Mm-hmm. When the first uh, uh, colonizers arrived in, in the U.S., there were already more than 300 languages spoken by the native peoples over here. But also it's important to remember that Spanish was spoken more than 100 years before English mm-hmm. in some of the territories. And I'm talking about Texas, and I'm talking about Colorado, I'm talking about California, I'm, I'm talking about New Mexico. So Mainly the whole Southwest. Exactly, mainly the whole, but also Florida, for example, right? Right, and right. Spanish was spoken already there. So there has to be an acknowledgement about that, regardless of the fact, and here's where uh, things uh, get confusing, right, that English could be considered the common, the most common language in the United States. No one is disputing that. But still, there's this uh, sense, uh, there's this privilege in someone telling somebody else, we are in America, speak English. That's absolutely a form of, of discrimination, right? But there are more nuanced forms of discrimination uh, that happen in schools, for example, in, and it's when we consider that students do not have a language. And this goes with my previous uh, argument about how we consider that whatever variety of language a student speaks is not language or is not good enough. So a lot of our multilingual learners, right, and we hear these, uh, um, sometimes we hear teachers and administrators speak like this about, in such a negative way about our students, um, from such a deficit lens, I would say, uh, from a students, when they say, oh, they don't speak Spanish and they don't speak English, or they don't speak Mandarin and they don't speak English. Well, guess what? They do. They do. Other things like if we value the variety of language that they speak, but these students, they speak perfectly with uh, regard to the context that they need the language, right? They learn in their house, they learn in their homes, and they come to school speaking a perfectly valid and uh, valuable uh, variety of Spanish, and they're on their way to learning English. So, but again, this may some people do not consider it but that's a form of discrimination when we say that our students do not have a language they don't have english and they don't have spanish for example you know for the federal government for many years would ask on surveys literacy you know are you literate in english they would never ask are you literate in another language so when the federal government would say are you literate in english they would report you know, certain percentage of immigrants are literate 
and certain and others are illiterate completely. They didn't. Not only did they not acknowledge literacy in their in their L one, their first languages, but they would call them, you know, illiterate. They they call them non literate at all because they don't have literacy in English. That's an excellent point, and that also goes to the uh, assessment practices in in schools, right? And and I can um, remember this, you know, like uh, Dr. Cathy Camilla and her group in Literacy Square have uh, has been argued. So when we assess a bilingual student in only one language, we're missing their entire linguistic repertoire. Right. So when we m m measure a monolingual student in English and we say, okay, this student is able to do um, to write 20 words, right? And um, we measure a multilingual student, a bilingual student, in only one language, and they're only able to produce, let's say, 12 words. We're missing the whole point because that student may be able to produce another 12 words in his or her native language. If we add 12 and 12, it's 24. As far as I know, 24 is more than 20. But the problem is that we do not value half of what that student is able to produce. And this is, again, this is systemic discrimination that it that permeated the way we approach the education of students, right? We do not, we basically do not even pay attention to the fact that we are disregarding the knowledge, you know, of, of that these students bring into our schools. So what can teachers do to, to not commit these discriminatory acts or these many say would call them microaggressions what can teachers do to to uh, solve this issue well first the, the first step is always awareness like like it all happens to us awareness of oh who who i am right and what is my language and how my language my language contributes to my identity right and then that awareness i know that teachers are constrained with a system that typically only values English and they need to adhere to those standards. But I think that there are different ways to approach, you know, the student. So um, when they're with the student, I believe, first of all, is like be vocal about it in these kind of situations. When they become aware, being vocal about it, we are not assessing the students properly, for example, right, and bring it up in whatever occasions they, they, they can, right? And And also the way that they treat students, I think it's important, you know, because also students perceive that uh, disregard, you know, that lack of value that the teachers assign to their cultural identity, to their language, right? So it's important that as teachers in our schools, we ensure, we take steps to ensure that the students feel valued, feel that they're welcome with whatever resources, which are a lot, bring, they bring to school. So how do you, can you talk a little bit about then the idea that oftentimes uh, Spanish-speaking students in particular will feel ashamed of their bilingualism. As an example, many years ago my, when we were living in Arizona, my wife was working for a, a grant, working on a federal grant, and she was charged with going into the schools and testing, giving a battery of tests to the Spanish-speaking children. And when she would go into a classroom, the students would say, I don't speak Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. And then she would, you know, the grant paid for this. So that, and this is, she would give them $10 and say, whoever speaks Spanish or whoever would like to come with me, I can pay them $10. And then all of a sudden, 99%, 100% of the kids in the class 
So, yeah, I speak Spanish. I speak Spanish. So it, it's kind of scary, right? You know, what what is the United States doing to these children, to immigrant populations as a whole, about their pride, about their identity, about uh, their understanding of themselves regarding language? And, and they're, 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 they're ashamed of being able to speak two languages. Can you speak to that a little bit? Uh, yeah. Well, thank you for the question, too. This is very interesting. But children very quickly understand what's cool, so to speak, and what's not, right? Um, and, and they don't want to be labeled in the negative category. When I came to the United States, I was uh, born and raised in Spain. By the way, I don't think that I mentioned it before. So I came from a very different background um, from the population that I found over here. Although we spoke Spanish and we could, and we can understand, uh, that's one of the advantages of speaking a language like Spanish or English, right? That we can speak to people in half of the world and they will understand us perfectly. But being bilingual in the context that I grew, that I grew up, is, uh, is a good thing, right? It means you speak two languages to whatever extent, you know, and, uh, but when I came to the U.S., I realized that in the context of education in the U.S., being bilingual means not speaking English correctly, mm. and that and children understand that from very early on as well, so they refuse to be uh, labeled as substandard, and that makes complete sense, because that's the context in what it is. We've heard it all the time, right? Uh, Racism, right? Discrimination is learned. And uh, our school's practices, that's basically the story that they're telling the you know, children. It's not good to speak a language other than English. That The first thing is you have to speak English. However, being bilingual, right? When your native language is English, that's a good thing. So if I'm a native English speaker, especially if I'm white, um, and then I acquire a language to whatever uh, um, proficiency level, that's considered an asset for me, but not the other way around. So we, we have our students from Mexico, we have our students from Guatemala, from El Salvador, from many other countries, and what we, the first thing that we try to do is to strip them of their language. Basically, we're trying to tell them what you bring is worthless, don't use them, and they immediately pick it up. So they're trying to protect themselves. I don't speak Spanish. Right. No, it's, it's not me. Even though you, you may suspect that they speak Spanish. But sadly... This also permeates to their families. And there are families that then refuse bilingual services for their children because they think that they're going to be discriminated against if they're in these programs. And sometimes these programs are so necessary for uh, children's um, academic success in the long run. So can, can you talk about that? What, what are the different programs that are available in the United States for English learners? There are basically two umbrellas of programs that, that I like to discuss. First, I think it's important to contextualize um, the history of bilingual education in the United States since the uh, 1960s, really, because the uh, movement for bilingual education is actually starts with the, uh, the civil rights movement in, in, the, in the U.S. They, they both go hand in hand. And so basically, uh, Mexican families, mainly, they start to realize that they, they want to maintain their language, right? They, 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 
they were aware, but they started becoming vocal about the discrimination that their children face in schools because just of language. So they, they start demanding that their children are taught in, uh, in a different language, in, in their own language. Um, also, Chinese families did this, so because we have to remember that although uh, the uh, ESEA, right, the Elementary and Secondary Educational Act, that was first approved in 1965, and in its re reauthorization in 1968, it includes Title VII, which is a, a clause about bilingual education, which is the first instance at the federal de level in which states uh, receive money in order for districts to implement programs that use the native language to serve students who are yet not fluent in English. But the first cases, right, the, uh, that still rule the education of um, multilingual learners in the U.S. hinge on core sentences. One is Law versus Nichols, right, in 1974, and the other one is Castaneda versus Picard in uh, 1981. So basically, bilingual education is framed or is built around the idea of how do we teach English to students that are not yet proficient in the language, right? So it was embedded in this remedial sort of lens, and, and this is what we see up to today. So out of that lenses, there are two programs that are built. One set of programs doesn't use uh, the native language. In Illinois, those are uh, considered TPI, right? The Transitional Programs of Instruction, and they have many other names, uh, Shelter English Immersion, and they have basically two components. One component that is uh, ESL, English as a Second Language, and students, depending uh, on their proficiency level, receive X amount of time of ESL, of English as a Second Language, but also then teachers are uh, required to adapt the language that they use, not to water it down, just adapt it, so that the content that they teach is accessible for students at different proficiency levels of English. So, which that actually brings a lot of questions, but we can talk about them in terms of, well, how do we ensure that teachers are actually adapting that content? Are they qualified? Do they understand the situations, the issues the students face when they're trying to learn content in a language that they do not yet master, et cetera, et cetera. And then there is another set of, of programs, and they, they were considered bilingual programs because they use the native language of the students. But the reality is that the objective of those programs was not really to generate bilingual, biliterate students. They were designed as a transition to English-only programs. So what they basically, uh, these programs were framed is like they would be in the context of, in the, in, in the time frame of three years, we will um, give students uh, as much instruction in their native language as we can, and then we'll reduce it little by little until they're able to follow instruction only in English. But again, the program never really considered, although they were called bilingual education, that, that program never really considered, never really cared if the students ultimately were bilingual or not. That was like K through three, right? Exactly. That, those were really what they are. So, and actually, there were three states that uh, um, initially jumped on this, right? Massachusetts in 1971, and then Texas and Illinois in 1973. Actually, uh, still in Illinois, sadly not in Massachusetts, 
but still in Illinois and in Texas, the law still works up uh, that the same way as it was passed in 1973. Well, there have been amendments um, to the law in Illinois throughout the years, but the uh, base of the law is the same as in 1973. So, however, there there is another set of programs that were developed at the same time that were called maintenance programs in the beginning, and these are programs that whose intention is really to uh, um, develop or uh, to teach bilingual bilateral students. You know. And then what these maintenance programs have several names, and now we see the dual language programs, right, which is the ultimate sort of version. And here we go again, although um, dual language programs are, have been proved to be extremely effective, not only on um, teaching bilingual bilateral students, but in terms of academics, since that students that participate in dual language programs excel academically uh, beyond, you know, what's been the uh, the prototype of the of the student in in the U.S. Right, which is basically white middle affluent class. Right, so the results of those students are considered the highest. So in comparison to those students, students that are in dual language program excel them. So and and there's a lot of research. Uh, that has been done, especially by Thomas and Collier, uh, mm-hmm. throughout the throughout the years. So those are programs actually that are originated in Florida. The Coral Way was the first one, and but that program was a program that was built for uh, Cuban refugees. So for the uh, Cuban refugees that uh, ran away from from Castro um, in the 50s and settled in in Florida. The, the first Coral Way is, was the first program that taught b- basically English and Spanish. And these programs uh, were comprised of half, roughly, not necessarily exactly 50%, but uh, roughly 50% of the population native English speakers and um, 50% of the population in the program were Spanish English speakers. And, uh, and the program lasts throughout the, the entire K through 5, for example, are, although now there are a lot of K through 12 programs, really, and in Illinois, for example, we we have a lot of examples of that, which is a good which is a good thing. So that these programs are proliferating, that they're being successful, but we see again that white families are the ones that are advocating for these programs as well. So we also need, whenever we implement a dual language program, we need to look who are we serving and to make sure that we are not using a population to ensure that, again, white students learn a second language, but that we are also tending to the needs and the assets, right, of those students on the other aisle, right? Those brown students that speak Spanish, for example, or Asian students that that speak Mandarin, that we are also serving them. So there's, can you explain the difference then between a maintenance program and a which is also called a one-way dual language and a two-way dual language. Yeah, thank you for the reminder. Yeah, I forgot in the mix about the <laughs> one-way, which are the maintenance programs, exactly. Yeah. But one-way programs are programs that, uh, in which 100% of the population were non-English, uh, uh, non-native uh, English speakers. So whatever the language it was, but the 100% of the students spoke that language and the intention at some point was to introduce English but that they end up the program being also literate, uh, biliterate, bilingual, English, Spanish, English, Mandarin, whatever the other language was. So, yeah. So, so my daughter was actually in the here in the Tikal program, the 
the, the late exit or maintenance or one-way dual language program. And she's able to read Spanish and in English in very, very high levels and speak in high levels. Well, I'm very proud of that. Um, they can, work. They, they do work, work absolutely. They work. And I'm glad to see that the Center for Applied Linguistics, Cal, in Washington, D.C., has now started, for the last several years, has been collecting the number of programs, dual language, two-way dual language programs across the country. And the number is hundreds now across the country. Whereas before, it was just, you know, one in one state and maybe three in another state, that kind of thing. So now we have 50, 60, 70 in, in several states. So it's a beautiful thing. Uh, the concept of bilingualism is actually starting to catch on, which, you know, I have always looked at United States as a very linguophobic country. You know, we don't like, we're afraid of other languages. We're, we're afraid of people who speak other languages. Yeah. So I think this is a good change. Remember that uh, the United States have been named cemetery for languages, right? Yeah, yeah. And also bubble in reverse. So many people come in speaking uh, different languages, but end up only speaking one. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's you know when Rumbo came out with that, the uh, uh, who is a linguist and came out and said that United States is a linguistic graveyard. Yeah. You know, that's when I say that to my students, they're like, Oh my God! You know, I never thought about it that way, but it's so true. And when we do a language family tree in my class, you know, how many languages do you speak versus how many your parents speak versus how many the immigrant parents came, you know, the grandparents, right? This kind of a thing. And how we turn out to be monolingual as opposed to multilingual, which many of our grandparents are, or parents, if we're, you know, one and a half generation, are. Uh, can you speak also about how the two-way dual language program reduces the linguistic discrimination that occurs in schools? It has the potential to do it, but we have to be aware of um, how to reduce that potential disc linguistic discrimination. Again, one of the uh, arguments against dual language programs, right, is this concept of, of gentrification, right, also applied to education, in which basically white population uh, control the entire program and therefore, the program is oriented again so that basically native English speakers can speak a second language. That should not be the goal of a uh, dual language program. In fact, if you mentioned CAL, the Center for Applied Linguistics, they have a guidelines, they have guidelines, uh, uh, the principles for uh, dual language education in which they talk about three pillars, right? They talk about bilingual, bicultural, high academic achievement, right, in both languages, and then uh, the uh, talk about a sociocultural component. And there is a, a number of scholars like uh, De Palmer, Claudia Cervantes-Soon, Catherine Henderson, Dan Hyman, that I've been uh, also talking about a fourth pillar, which is social justice. So it's basically how we ensure that these, these programs do not serve only as a bridge for a specific native English population to speak another language, but to level the, uh, the playing field for all students. So that, again, that we consider the presence of um, Latinx students in these programs not as a mere vehicle, you know, for, 
for linguistic uh, language acquisition, but that their culture is also respected, not only respected, but valued at the same level as we valued English, right? And there has to be special considerations in how these programs are put in place and run to ensure, again, that both languages, right, and, and both cultures, both set of students are on this equal playing field. So we are currently in a phenomenon called a pandemic. <laughs> and most schools, well, at least in the, in the end of spring, everything was turned, was put on, uh, all education was online. And now we are in a, in a state of flux. We don't know what's happening in the fall, really. And some schools will be going back online, others will be a hybrid. And what, what can you, what suggestions can you provide to schools regarding the English learners um, to ensure that they are still getting both languages, that they're still getting the education that not only that they need, but the education that they deserve? That's also an excellent question and actually uh, very relevant. Uh, I recently read a report in which the estimation in Texas uh, of students that basically fell off the grid right. for English learners, for bilingual, multilingual learners, was huge. And we're talking about almost 75% of them, you know, that they wow. actually didn't know uh, what was happening. So the first consideration, right, is uh, uh, we all imagine that uh, everybody grew up the way we did, right? And we imagine how our house was set up and sort of our living conditions. And uh, the reality is that our cultural and linguistic diverse families may not live the, the same way. So that's that's the first uh, realization, you know, that we need to look at. So, okay. And then do they have access to whatever, how the, the way we're trying to reach to them? So, because we they also realize that. How many computers are in the home, right? Do they have the possibility to have computers? How secure is their internet, right? How if they stable, have internet. If they have internet, exactly. Yeah. If they have internet in, in the first place, you know, do they have a space in which the child, yeah, the student can feel comfortable uh, and safe, you know, for example, participating in these online sessions, you know, who guides them, you know, because if children need guidance uh, also uh, with these online practices, you know. So if you have a family that uh, faces a linguistic barrier when trying to help their students, you know, follow the session. For example, I have an eight-year-old home, right? And last year he was trying to finish second grade and I had to be with him, sitting with him all of the time to make sure that he was following the online version of the lessons that he was taking in school. So. Uh, I, if I put myself, imagine that I do not speak English, I mean, it would have been very tough for me to understand if my son was following through or understanding or doing what he was supposed to do. So we also need to understand that and, and realize, okay, what other services we can provide not only the students, but the families to understand, you know, what, what the plan is, why this is important, and what they can do at home. Also, again, this brings the importance of using the native language of the students that we, again, we typically have the mentality that only English matters. And a situation like this pandemic, I think, needs to make us think that English is not the only thing 
that we need to communicate to our students and their families, that, that the use of the native language is essential when things like this happen, and that that relationship that uh, is built between the family, not only the child, but the family and the school, needs to be based also on the linguistic and cultural understandings of the families we serve, because it's the responsibility of the school to make sure that the barriers that students and families face are removed. That's the responsibility of the school. And although the uh, Educational uh, Equity Opportunity Act already says that in 1974, to this day, we see a lot of districts, sadly, that still seem to operate from a frame of mind in which it's the parents, it's the family's problem, it's the student's problem if they don't speak English or if they don't know this. We don't say the same thing about students that do not know math, for example. I think it would be preposterous that, oh, I'm the math teacher, right? But they don't know math. Well, your role is to teach them, right? So that's, that's the idea. And you need to teach them the way that students learn. Now, not the way that I want to teach them, right? Or in my imagination, what I think the students should know already. So, so uh, it, you know, to, to bring this to a close, um, is there, what would you like for the listeners of this podcast to leave with? What, what, what idea or concept that, that you would like them for, to leave with? What I think, first of all, is that uh, I'd like them to um, overcome that deficit mentality that we often see, to be aware of those instances in which our students are said like what we were saying in the beginning, oh, this student doesn't speak English and doesn't speak Spanish, they have no language, right? These instances. And that we become more aware of how some practices actually, you know, um, hit the um, potential of our students, you know, and understand that some students face a temporary barrier that is their English proficiency at some point, and, and that again, that that's a temporary first of all, second of all, the school is the one that is responsible to ensure that, that, bear, that the effect of that barrier is eliminated or minimized, and second of all, that regardless of the linguistic barriers, students bring a set of assets, a, a wealth of assets, assets I would say, to the room to the environment and that we need to consider who we are serving. Our population is changing drastically and if we have an idealized version of a student in our mind or who we like, we are replicating some racial considerations that we need to be aware of as well. So if we need to attend to, we need to tend to the children that we are serving at this time, you know, whatever their background, ethnic, linguistic, racial is. Well, David, thank you so much. This was just wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.